Hello and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I am your host, Radu Palamariu, Global Supply Chain Practice Head for Morgan Phillips Executive Search. Today, I'm delighted to have with us Sane Manders, COO of Flexport. Uh, just a couple of words on Flexport, uh, which is one of the fastest growing 3PL in the world. And in just five years, they have distinguished themselves as the leading software-powered freight forwarder, helping more than 15,000 companies deliver their goods to customers worldwide. Sane joined Flexport in 2014 very soon after the company's start. And as the chief operating officer, he is responsible for operations, procurement, and carrier relations across all modes of transportation. Before Flexport, he was at PCG, the global management consulting firm, leading customer relations in logistics and the supply chain practice across worldwide assignments. He also sits on the advisory board of Port Excel, which is the accelerator of the Port of Rotterdam. Uh, Sane, it's a pleasure to have you with us today, and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. Super. So maybe, maybe let's start by, by talking a little bit about, um, about uh, Flexport, giving some context to our audience. And maybe if you can share with us, what is currently the main pain point that Flexport is, is solving and how do you feel you're disrupting the freight and logistics industry? Yeah, so, so Flexport is, is a freight forwarder and customs broker. And um, what freight forwarding and customs brokerage does is managing the complexity of global supply chains. Um, and, you know, if you're looking into supply chains, there are a lot of, a lot of problems. Um, first of all, it's an industry which is still uh, lagging in technology adoption. Um, you know, I always make the joke, it's still pre-Netscape. And as a result, there's not that much um, structured data in the industry. Um, and if you're lacking structured data, um, both the customer experience, which means visibility, transparency, you know, can I just have a real-time view on my supply chain? That's, uh, that's missing. Um, but it's also, what's also missing is the, uh, a higher degree of automation, which basically reduces your cost to serve. It reduces human error. Uh, it just speeds up everything. Uh, so we're working ba- basically on two things. One is our customer experience. So that's all about visibility, it's analytics. Um, and we're talking about uh, cost to serve. So reducing the cost of shipping, uh, which not, does, doesn't mean the cost that, or the, 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 the cost of, let's say, uh, the containerized transport. It is the cost of the coordination. Um, if you're looking at freight forwarders, um, they charge roughly 20, 25 you know, the top, the, the leading players in the world, even 35% of margin to schedule that, um, that transaction, uh, to coordinate that transaction. And a lot of that, a lot of that money goes into the inefficiency to make sure that the human to human, let's say, uh, relay race, uh, keeps on running. And by bringing in uh, data, you can actually replace that human to human relay race with a machine to machine, reducing human error and also uh, reducing costs. Yes, um, and 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 basically, I, I think uh, that that brought us to the to the to the next question, and you gave a bit of context in terms of how the current freight forwarding industry works, which is a highly actually it's still highly paper based. Um, a lot of coordination between uh, between different parties, a lot of coordination between different uh, humans, of course, um, that leads to a lot of uh, a lot of mistakes, and I think that's where or can lead to a lot of mistakes or delays, and that's where um, uh, you guys created a, a big stir uh, when when you started and as well as as uh, now you're growing uh, because you're offering that uh, that visibility um, that a lot of companies uh, appreciate um, but maybe maybe if we can talk a little bit about digitalization because uh, 
or digitization because I think it's it's a topic in every 3PL and in, in, in most supply chain companies they're talking about it, most manufacturers are talking about it. Um, how long do you think that uh, it will take the traditional players to catch up with you guys? Yeah, that's a very hard um, that's a very hard question to answer. Um, but let's take let's take for a minute to step back. Um, this is um, this is a very hard industry. Um, typically, if you're moving a product from a factory, let's say in China, to uh, a customer in the US, there are between seven and fifteen parties involved, and then I'm not only talking about asset owners. I'm also talking about customs brokers, port authorities, uh, talking about the insurance company, um, purchase order management, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's a complex network of a lot of different stakeholders. Um, those stakeholders um, all use different systems. They use different standards. So it's very hard to say like, oh yeah, let's just create a platform uh, that aligns all those stakeholders because all those stakeholders have worked for 200 years in a specific way. So by coming in and say like, we're going to do everything different, you're not solving it because all those vested interests are not going to change. Um, so it's a hard industry and it's a hard industry to change. So also to give, you know, uh, all the players that are out there and existing already for 50 to 200 years, a lot of credibility, they managed all this complexity in a world where there was no internet, right? So they have very strong processes. They have global cooperation models, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that comes, at a, that comes at a cost, right? If you're looking at the top players in the world, they employ 50,000 people. Well, they have two, 3% market share. Uh, so if you want to get, get to a company that has 20% market share, you have to hire another 450,000 people, right? Um, not many pe- not many companies have been successful. And honestly speaking, um, I think there are only two companies in the world that employ that many people. And I'm not sure whether that's successful because one of them is the Indian Railways. Um, so you have to look at, you know, how do I grow from an industry which is so fragmented but has inherently so much scale to an industry which is much more efficient that can be, let's say, 10x the size um, or a, a company that can be 10x the size with the same amount of people. And there are two ways to consolidate this industry. Um, and what you've seen historically is consolidation. Well, this makes the problem only worse because all those companies that get together even have you know different system requirements, different processes. Uh, it takes them ages to align those things. I know of one of the leading freight forwarders. They started in, in implementing SAP in 2008. And somebody told me that they might be ready with their first version in 2018, right? We were founded in 2014, right? <laughs> so the other approach to the same, uh, and that's and the reason is that because they have so many different systems, so many different operating companies that work differently. So it's very hard to standardize even within that company. So the other approach is the technology approach and basically starting greenfield and say like, okay, um, what is it, what it should look like um, and, 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 and build it from there. And of course, we believe in that technology approach um, where, um, where historically the industry has believed in, an, in a consolidation approach. Mm. And I mean, uh, to add to your point, I think we've seen a lot of that, right? So, I mean, we've seen big, uh, big acquisitions. We've seen uh, TNT being acquired by FedEx on the express side. We've seen, uh, you know, DSZ acquiring UTI. And there's been a lot of other, you know, XPO has bought a few companies in the US. Um, so I think there's been a lot of the, that consolidation model, which seems to still work to a certain extent. I think DSV, uh, let's, let's just name it as an example. It has, it, it's seen as a successful um, model. Um, and I guess um, it's, it's the way the industry has run. It's, uh, it's not the way that you plan to do things. But I'm just wondering from, um, 
uh, let's say network perspective, right? If we had to speak, because also these guys, I mean, it's it's also a deeply a network business, right? Pay forwarding is a network business. It's a is a, um, a relationship in t- in terms of your provider's business, and this incumbents have solid big networks. Um, how do you guys plan to to reach that scale? Because that takes time. I mean, I don't know if technology can help, but obviously it, it's still a, a time a time game in which to to build the capabilities. Yeah, and exactly, and this is and this is of course the race that we're running, and it comes back again. Uh, it comes back to your previous question on, you know, when are these guys catching up? Um, well, they have a lot of advantage. They have a they have a headway on us in terms of network, uh, in terms of uh, you know uh, having built a mature company that has you know all the HR processes and stuff like that, right? You know, they've been around for a hundred years. You know, we've been around for four years, so they have a lot of headways uh, in terms of uh, network experience. Experience. Um, they also have uh, a lot of headwinds, uh, and that is, you know, t- trying to change your legacy systems into 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 modern technology. And this is the race we're running, right? We have to catch up on network and experience. They have to catch up on technology, um, and you know, uh, we both have to work really hard. Um, I don't think there will be a winner take all in this market. Uh, what I do think is, you know, currently there. 100,000 forwarders in the world, um, um, uh, the, the end game might be that there are 50 forwarders in the world. But out of those 50, yes, there will be definitely uh, a couple of them. There are the established players that have reinvented themselves. And you know, some are doing a really good job there. Um, so, And we see them as good competition. Um, and we have to catch up on the networks. So then getting back to networks, um, how do we deal with, let's say, that disadvantage? Well, uh, there are a couple of things. Um, number one, you can move pretty fast. Um, so, you know, we are a very adaptive company. We move very, very fast. Um, so we're now 10 or 11 offices, which we opened in, 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 in four years. Um, same for the warehousing footprint. We're moving very, very fast. Um, number two... Um, you don't always have to use a fully owned model, right? You can also partner with companies um, in a way that, you know, they own the assets, um, but we define the processes. So that's, for instance, what we do on the trucking side. Um, On the trucking side, we don't own any assets, but what we do own is the software that the assets are working through. Um, So... The trucking companies that we work together with, we bring a lot of value to them. And in return, they install our software. So all of a sudden, we have actually uh, a lot of advantage in terms of cost to serve. And they have a lot of inv- advantage because we bring them more business, but we give them also more visibility um, on what's coming. For instance, you know, our trucking companies in LA know so many days out. Um how, how many containers are coming there? We don't book them a day before. So you can actually create ways to collaborate with other parties um, 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 that are so beneficial that you can grow your network uh, quicker. And I mean, if if we were to think, um, if we were to think a couple of years ahead, um, I don't know, a couple, five to ten years ahead, and all this this big uh, mammoth uh, organizations uh, trying to trying to digitalize, you know, your Schenker, your DHLs, your Kunanagos, let's let's just name the top three, right? Um, once some of them or all of them will manage to uh, will manage to to do that, and um, 
And I think uh, Ryan uh, Pedersen, your CEO, was, was mentioning at some point in TechCrunch that, 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 that really there's uh, 25 freight forwarders, uh, there's only 25 freight forwarders that do 1 billion in revenue a year or more from all those 100,000. So there's 25 that are uh, big. Um, so once uh, the top three or some of these 25 will manage to, um, to get um, uh, to that digital uh, adoption, where do you see Flexforce still having a, a unique selling proposition on them? Yeah, it is a very good question. And, and, and it comes back, you know, what is, what is competitive advantage? Um, and this assumes a world where competitive advantage is stagnant, right? Where you have to get up to a certain, let's say, minimum bar and then everyone competes. Um, and I honestly think that the interesting part of, of, of the future of this industry um, starts after digitization, right? Because you can only do advanced functionality um, if you've digitized, right? People talk about AI, people talk about blockchain. Um, honestly speaking, all these things are not relevant if you don't have digital data. Um, so we're now going through this phase of digitizing data, making sure that, you know, the human to human relay race or, uh, is, 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 is structured in digital data. So it's a real digital transformation, uh, which now helps for the customer experience over time will help for cost to serve, but it, um, you know, but those things are things where others can catch up as well. But, you know, if you have that digital infrastructure, you can also start talking about optimization. Uh, optimization currently in freight forwarding is run on spreadsheets or it's, it's run by judgment of people. There are not that many models running in the background on, on running on big data. Well, then all of a sudden you open a whole Pandora box of optimization, right? Great example of that is why do people um, uh, use so much full container loads? Well, it's because they don't trust less than container load. Well, less than container load is actually a better product because you can reduce working capital. You get much more equal flow in your supply chain. Oh, if you have much better processes, if you have better visibility, um, if customs holes are under control because you know much better what's going on, um, LCL all of a sudden becomes an attractive uh, product to reduce working capital. Well, that's a great supply chain tool. Well, so that's the next phase is optimization. And then there is a phase which is called autopilot, where actually the software is making most of the decisions as long as it's within the guardrails. Um, so that actually means that a lot of people, a lot of logistics teams sitting at our customers will have a job, which is not keeping the ship afloat, but thinking about the future. They can think about how can I actually run my supply chain next year and in five years instead, instead of firefighting for the whole day and reconciling spreadsheets. So the interesting part is actually yet still to come, and that will define competitive advantage in the future. Uh, competitive advantage right now is a better user experience and a lower cost to serve. Uh, and I, I want to I want to ask you this question because uh, it, it's been um, it's been um, boggling me. And then also we had on the podcast uh, the CEO of, uh, of Haven. I don't know if you know uh, Matt uh, Tillman. So Haven is it's kind of like a like a software for automation in the shipping industry. Um, and I think they have similar backers to 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 yourselves. Um, and and really Matt was saying that he's trying to build this uh, this software. Uh, as a as a platform kind of a kind of a solution where he will he will run it as a, as a, as AS. Um, and I was wondering because um, at Flexford you kind of took the decision you have an, a wonderful software which you and a visibility uh, tool which you're giving for free um, or mostly for free right and then you you operate as a three PL. Why didn't you choose the other the other way around right the other path around where you become a software company and then um, uh, do the rest for free? 
Yeah, this is a very, very fundamental choice we made uh, in the, in the early days. And you know, I can't talk for for the choice that uh, Matt at 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 Haven made, but I can speak for 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 for, for the choice that we make. So, if you're looking at the freight forwarding industry, um, the 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 root cause or the the, the root of, of of all the problems is that it's a paper based industry. You know, and and if you if 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 you move paper, then Always the next party in the chain will have to read the message, interpret it, and then craft a message for the next party in the chain. So it remains that human to human relay race. Um, when we were looking at it, you know, this leads to a poor user experience, um, you know, supply chains remaining in the dark, and it leads to a high cost to serve. So we were like, you know, if you put a layer on top of the industry, which basically says, you know, now we're creating software where freight forwarders can work together, uh, you're not solving the root cause of the industry, and that's the lack of structured data. So we said, you know, we have to take the hard approach and, and Paul Graham always calls that the schlep approach. We have to take the hard approach to this business, doing the hard work to really create something which is outstanding on the user experience and cost to serve. Um, we're very happy that we took that choice, um, um, although it's the harder way to grow and the harder way to scale. Because if we're measuring our customer satisfaction, which we do, do in NPS, uh, we have a hundred point lead over the industry, and I am sure if we would have done only a software only approach, we would never have gotten there because you get a little bit of that problem of garbage in garbage out data if you're software only and we are actually if the data is not there, our teams create it uh, and therefore you get actually high quality in and as a result high quality out uh, so this was a very very fundamental choice uh, in the early days um, and you know is the future going to be like this? I don't know, um, because it might be that at some point in time, data is very, very good. And all asset owners and all parties in the chain deliver excellent data. Well, do you might not need that uh, managed service approach anymore. Um, that said, um, and this is also one of the things that you mentioned before, this is a relationship business. Uh, so you also want to have human interfaces, right? It's like um, uh, uh, Facebook also didn't uh, replace uh, the human interface. It actually enhanced the or human relation. It actually enhanced the human relation. Uh, and that's also what we are doing. Our technology should enhance the human relationships so that you know, our account managers are focused on making your company better instead of running transactions. Um, and, 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 and that's the way how we look at it. Yes. Yes. No. I mean, um, um, indeed. I mean, it definitely, is the harder way. Uh, there's, there's no, there's no doubt, there's no doubt about that. Uh, <laughs> For sure. So, uh, uh, you, you have picked the harder way. Um, that, that being said, it, it uh, obviously uh, as anything in life, right? Uh, typically, good things are not uh, are not done easily, and uh, and the, the, the rewards can be can be bigger if it's if it's harder. Um, and and that that kind of leads into the question that um, you know with all all, all this uh, said and done, what are currently your biggest challenges when attracting new clients? Yeah, so 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 the question is, what does a new client? So how does a, a new client make a decision um, to switch freight forwarder? Um, it typically, is that they're not very happy with their current freight forwarder because they've been asking the same questions for many many years. I want visibility and preferably on an SKU level, right? Uh, I want real-time analytics. I want high quality integrations, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I want software to manage my supply chain. Um, so 
honestly, that's what we what, that's what we deliver. You know, we might not be answering all their questions, but we're answering a lot of questions that are the, that the current um, current providers are not offering. So we have a lead there. We have a lead in what I say the, the, the customer experience. Um, that said, you know, um, uh, you're asking me, what is our biggest challenge? Well, we are growing every year. Well, we grew two and a half, three X in the, in, in the last two years. This year, we're expecting to grow two X. Well, our company is four years old. So that actually means that I have to grow in new customers what I grew in the three years before. So the numbers are just becoming daunting, right? Um, I just have to acquire a lot more new customers, which means having, you know, the sales force in place, having the marketing in place, having the feet on the streets, having the lead leads uh, lined up for me. Uh, so it's just a numbers game, which makes it, uh, makes it harder and harder. And that's just what every big company has. You know, it becomes harder to grow the same percentage as the year before. You know, we have to create a new, a new flex board every year. Uh, and that's, that's the hardest thing. If I'm looking at, you know, why do customers sometimes say no to us? Um, and that's typically when we're competing for bigger, for bigger businesses. And that's then against the incumbents or the bigger forwarders in the world. Um, sometimes they don't dare yet. Uh, we are the new kids on the block. Um, and it goes back to a little bit of the old wisdom. You've never been fired for hiring IBM. Um, and, 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 and that's sometimes, you know, we're fighting against that and, you know, we have to establish our brands and not everyone, um, dares to make the decision to work with us. Um, uh, you know, that will become less and less of a problem, but we got to earn the trust, um, and bigger and bigger companies are trusting us. Um, but, um, um, but you know, not everybody will, will, some people will see it as a leap of faith and you have to give them more time. Yes. And also, I mean, uh, also typically these things, uh, it's, it's kind of like a snowball effect. I mean, once, once you, you catch one or two of the bigger, bigger boys and they, then you deliver on your promises and you deliver on your, uh, uh, on your, uh, contracts and, and then that will trigger <laughs> sometimes the floodgates to open and you might not have, uh, you might not have enough capabilities to, to cater to everybody. But, uh, of course, that will also help you in terms of negotiating your rates, right? So that, that the cash 22 that you have to catch up with coming back to the network and the, the, the network expansion and the negotiation with the carriers and the, the rates that you get with the volumes that you have currently versus the volumes that, uh, I mean, if your volumes increase, obviously, then your rates get better as well. What, what helps there, and that's also coming back a little bit on your, on your question about the network, is also focus, right? Um, you know, I could pretend to be uh, a global forwarder offering, you know, uh, every country on the planet. But the reality is that I say no to quite a bit of business because I know that I might not be the best partner there. Um, I know what I'm very good at. I'm very good at the Trans-Pacific. I'm very good at the Transatlantic. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at, at, at Asia to Europe. Um, I also know where my competitive, uh, how, how I procure and how competitive I am. Um, if I look at the Trans-Pacific, for instance, we know that we are the number 18 right now uh, in our containerized volume on the Trans-Pacific. Well, we were number 10,000 four years ago. So, and, you know, around number 18, you know, the, the procurement skills, uh, the procurement uh, curve starts flattening out. We might not be there uh, at, the, at, at the procurement uh, power of the number one, but we're not very far off, right? We can offset that by accepting lower margins. Um 
on the air side, I also know that I'm also ballpark in the same uh, in, in in the same league. Um, and of course, our investment in our own capacity uh, in the last year, where we um, we signed a long term lease on a seven four seven. Um, uh, on Hong Kong LA has helped a lot in securing that capacity and and becoming a bigger player. Mm. And and and, um, and a little bit more more specific uh, more specific questions related to, to Asia Pacific in in, in particular because they're, they're, you're dealing with a lot of different uh, regulators and, and countries and customs and, and and all of that. How can you um, how are you able to assure? Uh, logistics companies and partners that you're always up to date in terms of the complexity of all these custom regulatory compliance uh, issues. Yeah. 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 So, 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 so it's very clear if we don't know, right. If there, if there are jurisdictions where we're not familiar with, uh, it's easier not to accept a business uh, than to go into the unknown. Right. So uh, saying there's so much good business out there uh, that is uh, relatively easy to say no to business where you're unsure or where, you know, you think it smells. Right. So uh, that's a very clear hard rule We're you know, we're under American jurisdiction. Um, and the American jurisdiction in how to operate uh, abroad is very strict in terms of uh, FCPA, uh, but also FMC. Um, so, so, so we're taking that very seriously. I think the way we have approached it, um, and it's actually very funny if you if you look at the history of, of Flexbolt, we've hired our compliance people probably before anyone else. Um, so our current, um, we yeah, our, our hire number two was a compliance person. Um, our current um, our current compliance team, um, and that means our general counsel and our deputy general counsel are both uh, PayPal PayPal veterans, right? They know how to work in multiple jurisdictions uh, around the world, and we've empowered them with very specific uh, capabilities. So IATA capabilities, FMC capabilities, MOCs for China capabilities. Um, so we've covered all the modes of transportation with very specific know-how. Uh, and then have a world-class team that came from PayPal that is uh, running basically um, our global compliance function. Then on the customs compliance, we have another um, um, uh, world-class team uh, that has cumulatively uh, probably 100 years of experience or something like that uh, in the leadership alone. And, uh, and, and talking about, uh, talking about uh, your latest... Um Round of funding, right? Which managed to, to secure 110 million from SF Express, which is the leading career company in China. Um, how, how do you plan to use the funds um, uh, for the next couple of uh, months? Yeah, so there is there is for the next couple of months. Uh, I, I hope I do a little bit longer with that. So yeah, it's it's a little bit longer than a couple of months. Um, um, so there, it's not that the so. The, the money that came from SF Express uh, is not specifically to the partnership with FS, SF Express, right? We see SF Express just like a DST or a founders fund as one of our investors in the company. Um, the advantage with SF Express is that they have um, also other ways to work with them. They're not only a financial backer, but they're also a strategic partner. Um, so we did, but we deployed our capital just as if they are a financial backer, but we're also doing things together. Um, so I mentioned already our freighter, um, you know, they are one of our anchor clients on our freighter, right? Um, um, there are many more plans in works with them, um, around physical infrastructure, uh, because they're the biggest, biggest, um, uh, one, 
probably the biggest logistics player in Asia. So they have a lot of physical infrastructure that we can leverage, uh, where you can leverage their capabilities. Um, so in general, what do we do with money? Um, <laughs> it, that, it, most of it goes into te- technology development, right? We don't subsidize freight. Um, we don't believe that's, 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 you know, people think that we subsidize freight. We've never done that. Um, all our money goes into technology development and goes in building our infrastructure. So building a warehousing footprint, uh, making an investment like in a freighter. You know, the freighter in the first two months is not going to break even because you have to build up that capability. Things go wrong. You have to build up that volume. Um, so, you know, strategic investment with a relatively short um, uh, payback period on, on the infrastructure side and then a lot of long-term investments on our technology side. Mm. And 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 um, and uh, I'm 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 just thinking a little bit from the journey from the from the beginning to, to now. I mean, you've come a long way. Uh, Flexport has come a long way, as you as you mentioned. It's some some crazy numbers, really, from ten thousand to, uh, to top twenty on certain uh, on certain trade lanes. Um, if you were to, to reflect a little bit, what were some of them? If you were to share maybe with our audience uh, who are thinking of embarking on an on a entrepreneurial journey or who have their own startups, what are some of the key takeaways for, for you? What are some of the, the, the key lessons that, that you've learned in these four years? Yeah, um, I would say the, the most important lesson is relentless focus on the customer. Right. Um, you can invent a Swiss army knife, um, but if nobody buys it, nobody buys it. Right. So it's better to focus on the customer and have something very specific for a smaller customer set and work from there. Like, you know, uh, not a Swiss army knife, but a point solution and work from there. Um, listen to your customers, constant feedback loops, uh, measuring customer success, um, that that that's that's lesson number one um you gotta sell before you have the you earn the right to invest right um and of course it goes a little bit hand in hand but don't think you get let's say i think we got in total right now what is it 300 million dollars don't think you get 300 million dollars um um because you have a great plan right you have to show that the customer really wants to buy you so it's a relentless focus on the customer uh, that's number one of course um building a team um that's probably <laughs> um that's also your primary interest in this industry building the right teams um bringing a diverse um set of capabilities together of builders entrepreneurs but also a lot of industry expertise i already mentioned compliance um, but it's also, if you're looking at the heads of our, you know, modes of transportation, um, you know, our head of, of, of air freight is the former chief operating officer of Delta Airlines Cargo. His name is Neil Jones Shah, right? My head of ocean freight um, is the head of uh, the former head of Kuna Nagel's uh, pricing department uh, for the Trans-Pacific on ocean freight, uh, Narius Poskus. So bringing the right capabilities on board. Um and and also putting that in a mix that they're all challenging each other, right? You don't want you don't want to rebuild the old industry. You want to have industry expertise, and then at the same time technologists uh, and other people that challenge the status quo and bring that all together into a mix uh, that wants to create the future. Uh, so that's I would say that's that's um, lesson number two. Lesson number three is is also just luck and timing. Um, we knew that at the moment we got into the market, uh, when you looked at the ocean uh, capacity on the uh, TPEB, so the Trans-Pacific Eastbound, um, there was a supply surplus. So prices were low. Um, everybody was treated equal. 
Um, so the big players didn't have that much pricing power um, 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 in favor. Uh, currently, that's shifting towards a more balanced market. And with the sulfur regulation coming in in 2020, we think actually it will be much more um, 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 a market where uh, there's more demand than supply. Well, you know, we knew that this period that we were working in was four or five years. So you have to establish yourself in those four or five years as, as, as a big player, because when the market turns and it becomes a, a supply constraint market, then all of a sudden the big players do have uh, much more bargaining power than the smaller ones. Um, so we had this grace period and we used it to grow up to the t- uh, top 20. Um, and we think actually we will be growing to the top, uh, top you know, to close to number 10 um, within, let's say, the next six to nine wow. months. Okay. Super. Uh, on that lane, eh? on that lane, I'm not claiming any global <laughs> global victories. <laughs> but it's the biggest straight lane in the world, right? So, um, yeah, yeah, we are. I think we are now roughly uh, in the top fifty global. If you're looking at uh, at revenues yes, and in the span of four years, so uh, again, putting things into context. Um, yeah, we still have a lot of work to do. Also, um, we're not not close to the number one. Yes. <laughs> Um, and, and I'm happy that you mentioned, uh, and, and this, this is a recurring theme, right? You mentioned team and you mentioned getting the right people on board as a, as a key element for, for success. Uh, um, and if I'm to, if we had to dig a little bit deeper, cause you, you did mention things like, like, uh, you know, not, not wanting to reinvent uh, and to do exactly the same as the industry, but at the same time, kind of acquiring the capabilities and, and knowledge, uh, inherent to the industry. And then, uh, you know, getting these people to kind of, uh, in, in a in a positive tension type of a way to challenge each other and and work together and 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 and, and create something better. Um, are there some you know I mean basically when you do recruit and you recruited and we're still recruiting for your leadership team into into flex with your next level down for yourself from yourself. Are there certain attributes or characteristics that you tend to look even even um, more specifically? Yeah, and, and, and those attributes are also changing over time. Um, you know, where in the early days, uh, we wanted to have, uh, you know, just problem solving skills. Um, people that just liked the, the problem of solving a puzzle and, and, and went the extra mile to solve it. Um, where now you also want to have leadership and managerial skills. If I look right now on what is what I'm looking for, of course, problem solving is still uh, high on my list, right? Because if you don't look for problem solving skills, you have to, uh, you have to risk that you're not uh, challenging the status quo. Uh, industry experience, depending on the role, um, but I would say, let's say in uh, 50% of all roles that we hire for, uh, you need industry experience, but the other 50%, you probably need a functional exper- expertise. So for instance, my head of pricing she didn't come from the um, from 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 the industry, but she came from a pricing background. Um, in very and she dealt with very similar problems in a very different industry. So she brings a lot of capabilities there. Um, collaboration. Um, the company is by now uh, close to eight hundred people, so you know how to you need to manage people and how to set them up for collaboration. A very expen- uh, important uh, um, important characteristic. And I would say the last one. Um, it's an adaptive mind set, uh, embracing change. Um, what you see from with people that come from um, bigger established companies is that they think in fixed patterns. Um, you know that when they're heading a department right now, they should head that department forever or head a bigger department. Well, we're changing the organization structure of the company every year, almost by design. 
um, just because we want people to have that adaptive mindset. The world is changing very quickly. We have to change very quickly as well. And so don't get stuck into your patterns. Don't try to defend your empire. You know, try to constructively basically destroy uh, everything every year and build it up uh, from scratch. Um, because I don't, you know, if I look at and you know at, at BCG, probably I've seen four hundred companies in my life, uh, and and you know the the, the 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 difference between good companies or bad companies and great companies is not the problems they have. They all have the same problems. It's the willingness to address them, and the willingness to address them is to embrace the change. Oh, that's an excellent point. And I mean, I, um, this 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 kind of applies, and and again, we're dealing with uh, with all sorts of uh, with all sorts of uh, of companies ourselves, and and and. Uh, Probably I don't know if I've seen 400 companies, but we've seen quite a fair bit as well. And that's uh, that's uh, I, I could not agree more that in the world that we live in, which basically is in constant change and constant um, um, uh, adaptation mode, unless you have that flexibility, versatility, and 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 desire really to to change, you you're in deep trouble. And, and in reality, most companies don't have it. And the more established they are, uh, I like the expression: right? the people have built their kingdoms. They they want to protect those uh, those uh, <laughs> kingdoms and that does, just doesn't work um, so um, interesting if you have that uh, if you have it almost as a culture in flexport of, of, uh, of uh, positive destruction and rebuilding every year I think it, it kind of forces people to get into the um, into that mindset and um, if I'm to use an analogy, because uh, I've been here personally for 10 years in Singapore. And when I came in Singapore, I was shocked at the, and maybe you've been to Singapore and it's, it's Asia in general. It's a, it's a, it's a shocking rhythm of development, which was, I was, I was not used to from, from Europe, but now after, after having lived here for 10 years, it seems like natural. And when I go back to Europe, it seems so slow, right? So, uh, after a while, if you kind of inculcate this culture, it, it, uh, it helps people to get used to it. And then the new blood that comes into the organization just takes it as a, as the new reality. So you, you've kind of created that, this vehicle uh, that in itself this is uh, i mean to me this is a can be a unique selling proposition right your culture is a unique selling proposition if it's done right yeah and it's also something that is very hard to uh to keep going um you know we are now four years old you hired people in the early days that scaled tremendously and have brought a lot to the company and at some point they get stuck in their ways what do you do right are you going to say like hey you know the party is over um or are you going to say like hey we have to redefine your role you know these are hard conversations um but you know those conversations you have to have all the time because um um because if you, if if you lose your adapt adaptability uh, you can't move fast anymore um and then you know you have to risk that you become you know um one one of the established players and you know that's you know as as jeff bezos always says it's always day one right um it's never day two it's always day one yes and I mean this. Uh, I mean just to just to add on again from from our angle, what what um, and what I'm seeing personally again and again is is also culture is hard to maintain for sure. Uh, you you've got to keep um, constantly keep yourself on the toes when you're hiring people, right? Not to not to let uh, not to become complacent, right? So hiring still big yeah, is is number one. Um, focus of the CEO of the leadership team. But again, if you manage to do that consistently, and very few do actually, because they, they, they fall into this trap of being complacent and, you know, they're number one or whatever. Um, but if you manage to do it, culture is so hard to replicate. 
you know, your competitors might replicate your product if you're a manufacturer, might replicate even your mm-hmm. software to certain, but they cannot replicate culture. This is the hardest thing to replicate. Um, so, so that's why it's, it's, it's so important. Yeah, for us, what, what's, what's the, the cornerstone of, of... There are two cornerstones of our culture that are hard to replicate. It's that fast moving, that, that adaptability. Um, I, I think that's very hard to, to replicate, especially in an incumbent, right? If you ask your engineers in an incumbent to show up with a suit and a tie every day, I'm not sure whether you're going to get the best engineers, right? Um, so, um, um, you know, it's so, 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 so that's... We want to have that culture of moving fast. Um, also, you know, um, that means breaking stuff. You know, you move so fast that you're breaking stuff. And that's okay because if you didn't break stuff, you didn't try anything. Um, so that's that's a part of our, our, our culture, a very important cornerstone. The other part of our culture is, uh, and that's our value number one, uh, it's empower the customer. Um, and we've even designed our whole organization towards the customer. Where you see in most of the companies that we're competing with, they have a sales department, they have an, a, a, an operations department, or maybe even an ocean operations, an air operations, a customs, a trucking. And what we've said is, no, we have to tilt this towards the customer. So we have for every customer a key account management team, we call it the squad, that has all the functional capabilities in it. It has um, sales, account management, operations, and customs. So in that little team, um, anyone can serve the customer. Anyone can answer the customer's questions unless it gets extremely specific. But for 95% of all the questions, you get the answer from the first pe- person you have on the telephone instead of that you're getting passed on 15 times, um, et cetera, et cetera. So tilting that organization model, t- t- tilting it 90 degrees towards the customer is very hard for others to replicate because they've been set in their ways for many, many years. Uh, they want to keep it run or uh, functionally, you know, all these functional silos have their own KPIs. They're not necessarily aligned. You know, sales wants to sell as much as possible, operations as cheap as possible. We have said no. They're all in fu- uh, cross-functional teams reporting basically to the customer and having one goal in mind, and that's net promoter score, customer satisfaction. And that aligns the incentives um, um, and aligns the incentives towards a customer. And that's our second cornerstone of mm. our culture. How do you, because you, you mentioned about this and actually you got me really intrigued, net promoter score. Um, and it's, it's, it's actually something that, uh, that I mean, uh, is the, I, I don't remember any other 3PL that I've dealt with uh, even having this as a, as a KPI. How do you, how do you measure it? Tell us a little bit about it. I mean, I know from it, from typically it's, a, it's a from technology companies or from e-commerce or from, um, I mean, from media companies, but tell us a little bit, how do you use it as Flexport? Yep. So, so there is no perfect um, uh, customer satisfaction index or score, right? So uh, you have to use multiple, uh, like more like surveys, etc. But no customer wants to fill a survey very often. So what we said is like we need to have this simple pulse check that we understand what does the customer think at any moment in time. So Net Promoter Score is a great way to do that. And what Net Promoter Score does is actually it asks one question and say, like, how likely would you recommend Flexport to somebody else? And you can score that a 0 to a 10, which means that a, a 9 and a 10 is a promoter. A 0 to a 6 is a detractor. They don't like it. They don't wouldn't recommend you. And a 7 and an 8 is what they call a passive. Um, 
So if you summarize all the nines in the tens and you detract the zeros to the six and divide it by um, the total, you get what they call the net promoter score. This is a score which goes between minus 100 and plus 100. Um, and the standard of excellence is set at 50. So everything above 50 is, is considered excellent. Um, we've set our internal goal at the standard of excellence. We need to be 50 plus. And the reality is that we're roughly... You know, it depends a little bit on the week and we're, you know, measuring it all the time, but it's always high 50s, mid 60s. Somewhere there in between uh, is, is our net promoter score. We measure it by key stakeholder, you know, whether you are somebody who's working in the warehouse, whether you are paying our bills or whether you're a primary stakeholder or a CFO, we're measuring that all. Um, the reality is all about 50 and, 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 and that's very good. So then how do you get the data for the rest of the industry? That's a little bit harder, right? Um, uh, I know there's one other uh, forwarder that actually internally measures net promoter score. Um, we have a few people working from there with us, so we know what their net promoter score is. Um, and there is some um, there are some uh, data out there from neutral platforms that measure net promoter score. They say that... The industry is at roughly minus 35 um, and the best in class. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. no, people are not very happy typically uh, with a full. Sounds you know, about right. Yeah. We, we even had a tagline at some points for our online marketing, which was, yes, you can love your freight forwarder uh, because that's so <laughs> uncommon, right? <laughs> and then the best in class players, they're around zero. Um, so we say, you know, we have a 50 point lead over the best in class players, a hundred over the average industry. Um that's also the reason why we're so, you know, why we can double our customer count every year because, you know, the virality of that, people just tell each other, right? They start re recommending wow. us to others. Oh, it's tremendous. I mean, I'm, I'm very happy that, that you shared this because this, this is a, I mean, uh, to me, I've never come across it. So uh, I'll ask you separately who's the, the other, the other, the other free folder, but it's, it's definitely, I mean, it's uh, obviously this is a services industry and this, this, uh, this should be a priority for, uh, for most companies or for all companies. It's, it's just that uh, interestingly enough, uh, you're the first one that, uh, that, uh, that I've come across using it. So, um, way to go, uh, from my perspective. Um, and if, if I'm to, to shift a little bit the, the question and, and we're drawing the, the close to our, uh, to our podcast, but you've had yourself personally a very interesting career because you worked for many years as, uh, as a consultant, right, at BCG um, in the shipping and logistics industry. Uh, and then, then obviously, you, you ended up with Flexport. How did that happen? Did you know, did you know Ryan from before or, or what's, what's, the, what's the history behind yeah, the story is actually very simple. Um, so Ryan and I went to school together. <laughs> um, we went to Columbia Business School um, back in 2008. Uh, so that's how we got to know each other. Um, and we became friends there. And we even started a business uh, together then, uh, which was in a totally unrelated space. Um, uh, but we got to know each other really well. And uh, what we did know is that we have very complementary uh, skill sets. Um, and as a result that, you know, we empower each other. Um, we never step on each other's toes um, because Ryan is at, 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 at other things ex excellent than I am. And I could never be Ryan and Ryan could never be Sana, right? Um, so when Ryan um, was really at the early days of Flexport um, and he was in Y Combinator, the, the, the startup uh, accelerator, um, we were chatting about it and um, I told him, you know, hey, um, I actually do have a lot of experience about this because I never talked about BCG because it's always, you know, it's confidential. You can't talk about your customers. Um, 
but I know a lot about his industry. So can I help you a little bit? Because I think this is, you know, I've been looking at this industry and this needs a massive, massive transformation, uh, digital transformation. So I know actually probably um, to a certain extent what to do here. So I started helping him out on the site. Um, and at some point um, took a leave of absence um, and um, and turned that leave of absence into uh, um uh, joining Ryan because, um, I, I actually flew out to San Francisco and the deal was, you know, I'll help you with Flexport. Um, but you have to show me San Francisco or Silicon Valley to get inspired. And we worked like dogs for weeks on the business. And then at some point he told me, you know, it, it would be crazy to let you go. We have to do this together. Um, and, um, you know, he didn't have to convince me at that moment in time anymore. I was like, I have to put my, my, my money where my mouth is, um, and, and get out of the advisory role and do it myself. Um, a lot of people thought that I was crazy because I was very close to, uh, the, the partner the partner position at BCG. Um, uh, but it's, uh, you know, I was like, you know, this is, this is too much, too good of an, uh, of, you know, proving yourself that, uh, you know, what you're preaching, you have to do, uh, and it's probably the harder way to do it, but, but it's probably, but it's also the more fun way to do it. And, 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 and that's still how I think about it. It's the harder, but much more fun way to do it. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, story. Yeah. And, 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 and tell us, cause I like, I like, um, I like, and I, I've, I've had on the podcast a few, uh, board members and a few very senior executives actually from, uh, from established companies, as well as, uh, companies like yourself, which have come along in a very short span um, and that there seems to be a pattern of people coming from a consulting background whether it's external or internal did that play a part do you feel that played a part in your success um, and, and how I mean um, uh, how, how do you think it, it exposed you to many to, 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 to something else maybe Oh, absolutely. And, you know, um, if I would do everything all again, I would, I would do the consulting track again. Um, 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 because I, I think consulting uh, teaches you, um, um, three things. Uh, number one, um, you see a lot of different companies, um, and you see where companies, why people, companies are successful and why they're not uh, successful. Uh, that's number one. Um, number two, um, I worked specifically in supply chain and logistics a lot. So I also got a lot of domain expertise out of it, not by doing it, but by observing it and at all levels of the company, right? I reorganized, uh, distribution centers, but I also spent time in boardrooms and even, you know, connected those two, right? Because sometimes the problem of a boardroom is actually a problem on, on the work floor and you have to connect those things. Um, the third thing is it's just a career accelerator. You see so much. Um, the training is so good. Um, you're going every three months or every six months through a total new experience um, that is just setting you up for, for you know, accumulating a lot of experience in a very short period of time. Well, my short period of time in the end became 12 years, uh, but I enjoyed every, every, every year of those 12 years and I learned every year uh, a ton there. So I think, you know, it makes you very well-rounded. Um, the part which is different is operating a business, right? Um, uh, operating a business in terms of, let's say, being a people leader. Um, at BCG, um, they also gave me a lot of exposure to that. Of course, you're managing your own teams, but I also had other roles in career, uh, career, uh, uh, career development, which, which is more people management. Uh, but it is very different to, to operate a real business than a consulting business. Um, 
in that sense, I got a soft landing because when we started, <laughs> we were just a few people, which just looked very much like a consulting team. <laughs> um, and, and, and by now, and it was the intellectual challenge of a consulting team. How are we going to actually do this? We got this bag of money and we have a great idea. You know, how are we going to actually do it? Um, and, 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 and learn over time. Uh, yeah, now we're 800 people. Uh, but I also got the luxury that I can actually uh, hire uh, experienced people leaders um, that help me managing the business. And in the last four years, I also learned a ton on, uh, on, on, on people management. Um, final question. If, if you were to, to give uh, an advice to somebody that, uh, that wants to, I mean, young, young, uh, young graduate of a university and, and maybe they have this, uh, and I think in recent times it's become kind of a dream and uh, not a dream, uh, an exciting career in some ways to join a startup or start a startup or I don't know, become an entrepreneur. Becoming an entrepreneur has become much more uh, sexy than it ever used to be. And it's, uh, I think people fail to realize that it's super hard. Um, so if you were to give an, uh, an advice to somebody either wanting to join a startup or wanting to set up something on their own, what would that be? Yeah, well, starting on your own, keep in mind, it's not sexy. Um, it's, it's very, very hard work and a lot of existential questions in the beginning. <laughs> At some point, it becomes a real business and then, you know, then you de-risk it and, you, you know, and, and the existential questions uh, uh, disappear. But it's a hard journey, right? It's a very hard journey. It's much harder than... Uh, joining a company, um, uh, I have to say, and you know, they always said that at, at, at BCG that you had to be, you know, on top of your game and it's a high performance culture, which it absolutely is. But starting your own business is, um, is, 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 it's asking a little bit more from you than that even. Um, so it's not glamorous. It's just hard work and, 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 and persistence. Um, joining, um, it depends on the stage of the company, right? If you are uh, join an early stage company, uh, the interesting thing is that you can do, you know, your role is very wide and undefined and you can, you know, learn where you want to add value and, and grow into different roles. Um, if you join a little bit later stage, then it's more stable. Um, there are more managers in place that can actually teach you things. Um, you get a more dedicated role. So, uh, but still you have the advantage of, of a startup that you can rotate quickly. It's fast moving. So you learn a ton. You learn much more than at this established company where you maybe by definition or by, you know, people, people operations practices have to stay so many years in a job before you can actually think about the next thing. Um, so it's a super interesting, um, I almost, I almost call it an MBA, right? Uh, joining a startup is almost an MBA because you get exposed to so many different things. Um, so yes, I would highly recommend a lot of people to start or uh, not to join a startup to start. Um, they have to think twice, uh, because it's also, uh, you need to think how you're going to win and very often experience in the domain, um, or experience in Managing a business in general uh, is necessary to be successful. You always hear the stories of entrepreneurs that just started out of school. But if you're looking at the reality, uh, it's the more seasoned people in, in general that have successful businesses. Yeah, thank you for that. And I mean, I think that the, the issue has been uh, Facebook, really. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it just... <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there's there's one or two of these stories, right? Which which happen one in a in a million startups, and then people people look at it and say, yeah, if you can do it, so can I. I mean, yes, in theory you can, but you know the the reality of the numbers and the probability is against you. And ninety nine percent of the startups do fail, or ninety 
anyways, uh, most of them fail. So, and, uh, and there is a, there is a curve that, uh, I think I saw one uh, just, just the other week in terms of there's a high probability that people within th- between 30 to 40 years old that have a level of experience and working, uh, working years, uh, can make it as entrepreneurs rather than, uh, immediately after school just because they have some, uh, some life experience and, and practical experience to, under their belt. Uh, so, um, yeah, thank you for kind of enforcing or reinforcing that point. <laughs> Yeah, it's only the only thing is nice is if you're just out of school is that you don't have any commitments, right? People at that moment in time don't have a house. Uh, they're typically not married. They don't have kids, right? So it's okay. so 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 your opportunity cost at that moment in time are very low. So you have more time to experiment. Um, where people that have already had a couple of jobs, uh, their opportunity cost of starting a business is is higher. Uh, it might also be a self selection. That's why they maybe have better <laughs> better plans. Otherwise, they don't do it. So they start with better plans, um, and on top of that, they have uh, more experience. So if things go south or go north, to actually manage that uh, manage that uh, trajectory. Well, Son, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for for being with us, sharing with us, and 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 uh, and um, uh, basically imparting some of the the trenchy stories that you've had at, at Flexport. Uh, we wish you a lot of uh, a lot of continued growth, right? Continued growth and, and development, and we will be um, we will be watching uh, Flexport and its growth further, and uh, and uh, hopefully we'll catch you soon. Yeah, thank you very much for, uh, for, for inviting me. My pleasure. Catch you soon. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on radopalamario.com slash podcast for all the show notes, links, and extra tips covered in the interview. Make sure also to subscribe to our emailing list to get the news in the nick of time. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes or Stitcher and you like what we do, please kindly review and give us five stars so we can keep the energy flowing and get more people to find out about our podcast. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me to stay tuned for our latest uh, articles as well as future guests for the podcast. And if you have any suggestions or any other idea, please feel free to write to me. I respond to all. And also, please make sure not to miss our next episode where we will be having a few other C-level and top leaders in supply chain joining us. Stay tuned.